And you are stepping into the middle of a series called The Invisible Battle. And it's a series on, I think most theologians and Bible scholars and maybe some Christians would call this subject spiritual warfare that we're talking about. And this is the fourth message, and we're going through each piece of armor that we encounter here in this letter that Paul wrote. You know, the New Testament is filled with epistles and all that. That's a fancy word that means letters that apostles wrote to churches that had been planted and established, and they have gospel instruction, exhortations, and this is one of those letters that Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. And we are in the sixth chapter, as Ted just read, uh, and we're going to be really focusing on one verse in verse 15. So leave your Bibles open there. Um, And did you hear when he read this passage, the word against? The word against is riddled all throughout that passage. And I think that the Holy Spirit is trying to highlight for us that we have an adversary. We have an antagonist. We have an enemy that the Bible calls Satan, calls the devil. And I know a lot of people laugh, and they probably make a mockery of Christians and say, yeah, you guys believe in talking snakes and gardens and devils with pitchforks and horns. And, uh, and again, we don't, we don't know about the pitchfork and the horns, but definitely the Bible uh, holds out for us this reality that there are spiritual forces in the cosmos, the Bible says, evil, darkness. Uh, and Jesus, listen, Jesus believed in a personal devil. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So if you're going to ridicule the people that believe in a personal devil, then you're going to have to come to terms with Jesus because he believed in a personal devil. And his entire three and a half year ministry on earth was one that was in conflict with Satan. And we know that Satan is very powerful, the Bible says, calls him the God of this age calls him a ruler, says he has, has great authority, refers to him as a, as a roaring lion prowling about, seeking to pounce on unsuspecting victims. Um, so the Bible tells us that this reality is true. And not only is Satan powerful, but he is very cunning. He's very cunning. In fact, I wanted to read for you before we get started this morning a quote by one of my favorite preachers from the past, uh, David Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a doctor who surrendered to the call of ministry and one, was one of the greatest preachers in England. And he said this, and just remember this, and your engagement in this invisible battle that we have with our adversary, how Satan operates. Check this out. He said, the devil often changes his methods. Sometimes he comes to you, opposing you violently and condemning you. The next moment he will come flattering you. The devil contradicts himself, but he doesn't care. Sometimes he attacks the scripture. The next moment he will be quoting it. One moment he tells us we are not good enough to be Christians. Then he tells us that we are so good that we do not need the death of Christ in order to save us. One moment he says, don't overdo yourself. The next he fills us with a carnal zeal and makes us so busy that we ruin our health. The same devil tempts us to both extremes. And maybe you have experienced that... uh, that aspect of Satan, how cunning and crafty he is and the extremes that he goes to. And sometimes we fall victim to him because for the very fact that we have not put this armor on. And there's a reason why the Apostle Paul uses this metaphor of a soldier putting on each piece of armor. It's because we are in war. And listen, I've told you before, I believe personally, all the pieces of this armor, they represent all the benefits and the freedoms that the gospel has purchased for us. Everything that Jesus did on our behalf that comes freely to us as a gift, each piece of armor, I believe, represents that. So when Paul tells us to put on the armor of God, number one, it's God's armor. It's His. 
And then he says, and be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. He's reminding us these are things that God is the source of. We are cashing in on the finished work of Jesus. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? When you think of war and you think of fighting, you get scared, you get intimidated, and you think, oh goodness, I'm not a soldier, I can't fight, I'm a coward, I can't pick up a sword and swing it. But remember, the war is over, but the battle rages on. So we are to strengthen ourselves in the power that Christ provides. That's why we have all these pieces of armor. And we've looked at already the belt of truth. And last week we looked at the breastplate of righteousness, that that certainly is not our righteousness, It's the righteousness of Christ. If you try to go out and fight the enemy, you try to contend with him on his ground by putting on your own behavior, you're going to be mincemeat. That's like going up with an armored tank with a Nerf gun. He's going to make mincemeat out of you. So the righteousness belongs to Christ. And then we come to this strange piece of armor that deals with shoes. (laughs) You get really excited about that. We're talking about armor. We're talking about metal breastplates and helmets and swords and shoes. (laughs) It's not very exciting. It's kind of meh. But listen, I want to tell you this. If you are fighting, and you're fighting in a, a battle like this with an enemy like Satan, you better have shoes that are able to grip, right? You better be able to hold your ground. I mean, this whole passage talks about standing and withstanding and holding your ground all the time. The whole New Testament does. So if you have shoes that are going to slip, uh, you're going to be mincemeat. If you fall down in battle... I mean, you can use your imagination. If you are in hand-to-hand combat with a worthy adversary and you lose your footing and you slip and you fall down on the ground, you are vulnerable, you are open, and you are finished. You're probably not going to be getting back up and doing any more fighting. And I know we probably don't think of shoes as on the top of our list for armor, but without it, you're not going to be doing much damage. You're going to be receiving a lot of damage. So what is this armor? Well, I want us to look at this text carefully because I believe the people that I've read, the, the preachers that I've listened to, I think some of them miss this, and I don't say that. I hope I never sound condescending. Good godly men have disagreements on different parts of Scripture, how we interpret it, how we apply it. But I think if you read this text carefully, it may be surprising what this armor actually is and what it's not. So let's look at it. Ephesians chapter 6, specifically verse 15. After we put on the breastplate of righteousness, verse 15 says, and as shoes for your feet having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So what is this piece of armor, actually, that that is represented by shoes? What is it? Is it the gospel? No, it's not the gospel. Read that again. Read that again with me. He says, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. A lot of theologians and pastors have preached this passage, and they said this armor that we put on is that we are preaching the gospel. We are evangelists. We are going out, infiltrating the world, knocking on doors, shaking the bushes, trying to you know, proselytize. And listen, that's a very real and important spiritual discipline that should be a part of all of our lives. Not necessarily knocking on doors, but being ready to thoughtfully and meaningfully communicate the gospel to people in our circle of influence. But I would contend that that's not what this is talking about. This is not a picture of us going out preaching the gospel to unbelievers. This is actually, again, one of the benefits that we put on that comes from the finished work of Jesus in the gospel because it specifically says the gospel of what? Peace. This piece of armor is all about the peace of God that we experience because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. That's what it is. And the Bible says that this peace with God that we have 
um, has this readiness, this preparation that comes with it. It gives us, it's interesting this word, it means foundation, but it also means nimble and agile. You see the picture there? This readiness, some translations say this piece of armor is preparation. In other words, you're ready for anything. And the only thing that I can think of that will be a good parallel that would help you understand in modern terms is the athletic footwear that, that celebrity athletes wear. You know, athletes, you could call it spiritual athleticism, okay? You know, athletes have to reckon with gravity the same way we do. But they don't struggle with it the way we do, do they? They defy gravity. They seem to smile at gravity. They have a grace about them. I remember growing up, I was a football player, and I watched Monday Night Football, college football back then. I don't know why I've kind of lost interest. When you're not playing it, it's not as fun to watch it. But I can remember watching Bo Jackson. He was just so nimble and so agile and yet so hefty. He would be outrunning opponents that had the angle on him. They would have the angle on this guy, and he would still outrun them. Or Emmett Smith just being able to juke and just go around people. And I thought, man, I wish I, I wish I could do that. I mean, I love football and I'm a running back, but I can't do that. I can't do what those guys do. I'm not that agile. I'm not that graceful. I'm not that nimble. I'm not that quick on my feet. And I believe spiritually that's what the Bible is talking about here with this piece of armor. It's saying not only do these shoes give you a good foundation, but they make you agile, light-footed, sure-footed. You don't lose your grip. And so that's kind of the outline that I want to use this morning um, with this sermon. Uh, what do shoes do? In battle, if you're putting on, and this would actually be sandals for a Roman soldier, a Roman legion, he would put these sandals on and they would actually have spikes on the bottom like hobnails that they would help a soldier get his grip. So three things that this shoe would provide, and I want to translate that into our lives as Christians. One, this gospel piece provides traction so you don't lose your footing. Secondly, it provides protection for you. You know, whenever Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great would mobilize great armies and they would attack, you know, the enemy would lay down two-inch spikes and conceal them in the grass and on the plains. And these soldiers... Many of them, if they had poor footwear on, they would step on a spike and you're done. They didn't have tetanus shots back then either, I'm told. So uh, <laughs> you step on a two-inch rusty spike in the, in the battlefield, you know, that's not a mortal wound, but you're not going to be fighting. So this provides traction, it provides protection, and lastly, it provides mobility. So you're light-footed, so you're ready for change, you're ready for anything. So let's, let's look at these pieces of armor uh, one at a time. This can make you, uh, people that defy gravity spiritually, they can start fast, they can stop fast, they can change directions fast, they can get up off the ground fast, nothing can keep them down, they seem like they're always ready. And listen, Psalm 18, do you remember when David, he wrote Psalm 18 and he prayed this prayer, he said, Lord, give me feet like the hind feet of a deer. And I believe in Hebrew the idea is an ibex. Have you ever seen one of those mountain goats that they're... Uh, What's the word? They're native to the Middle East. I've seen pictures of like a, a, a concrete dam that was almost vertical, almost. And these goats, man, these, they're half goat, half deer. I don't know what they are. But they're able, they're so sure-footed, they can actually climb up these things and defy gravity. And David is like, Lord, give me feet like that. What's that mean? You are above it. It's not that things don't uh, affect you, but it's just they don't cause you to, to be plunged into despair, you know? You're not going to fall. Nothing can knock you off the top. You're at the top because God put you there. You're sure-footed. Uh, it's the same thing as soldiers. So, And listen, I think, I think so often 
these three things, we don't have protection, we don't have traction, we're not sure-footed spiritually, we're not easily mobilized as Christians, I believe part of the reason for that is we have failed to really apply this benefit of the gospel. And that's what I really want to talk to you about this morning. So point number one is traction. Traction. If you were a Roman soldier and you did not have on these sandals that had cleats on them and you were in slippery territory, maybe you were in water or you were up against cavalry and you had to be agile and quick and you fell down again, this would, this would be your downfall. So what does this mean? It means footing is important in battle. Spiritual battle, especially footing, is important. When you're on solid ground and maybe when doubt surfaces, you know what to do with it and where to take it. You know, Psalm 73 is one of my favorite psalms in the Old Testament. In the very beginning of that, there's this confession of belief. I think Asap wrote that psalm, and he said, Truly the Lord is good to Israel. God is good. God is good to His people. God is good all the time. And then he says, But as for me, my steps were slipping. My foot was sliding. And then that entire psalm is about, here's this mighty man of faith, Asap. He was a leader of, of Israel's choir. He was the choir director. And he said, Man, I'm losing it. I'm losing it here. I'm slipping. I'm sliding. He was losing his grip. And what he had to do, he went back to the secret place, to the tabernacle, to the temple, and he heard again God's covenant pledge to him. And I think the New Testament equivalent of that is what Paul's talking about here. When we're slipping, when we're sliding, when we experience doubt, when we're plunged into despair, we have depression, we have to go back to the gospel and remind ourselves, look, we have peace with God. That is, that is one of the most critical points of doctrine and theology that I think a lot of people miss. And listen, for a lot of people, I think they misunderstand that and it makes them a little, it, it unnerves and unsettles them a little bit. Because listen, the, the, one of the first truths you learn when you become a Christian is this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, when you, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says you then have peace with God. That's a beautiful doctrine, isn't it? That started the Reformation. We are justified. We are made right. We are reconciled to God because of faith in Christ. And what flows out of that is peace. And that's beautiful and that's lovely and that's stabilizing. And at the same time, it, it highlights the bad news uh, before the good news. What does that mean? If you're at peace with God because of Jesus, that means at one time you were what? Not at peace with God i got to be honest with you. Every time as a preacher I ever talk about this, I'm always, the hair on the back of my neck stands up, and I think, you know, I know there's a lot of people, they're going to contend with this. Not here, hopefully. If you believe the Bible, you have to acknowledge this. But I can tell you this, people in the world, when you tell them, hey, look, did you know the Bible says that you actually have hostility toward God? You know what most people say? You're nuts. I don't have any hostility toward God. Me and God are good. I love God. He loves me. I've loved him. I had one guy tell me this a long time ago. He said, I've loved God since I was a little guy. And I said, the Bible says you come out of your womb like shaking your fist at God. <laughs> it says that. It really does. Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says this. It says, the natural unbelieving mind apart from faith in Christ has hostility toward God. It actually uses a noun instead of an adjective. It actually says the natural mind is hostility toward God. Some translations say enmity. What's that mean? It means there's perpetual conflict. 
perpetual conflict. Jonathan Edwards was one of the Puritans that preached some of the Great Awakening sermons in America and the colonies back in the 1700s. Do you know one of the sermons that the Lord especially blessed and used to start the awakening? Now check this out. This was during the Puritan days. I'm not going to be titling any of my sermons this, but Jonathan Edwards preached a sermon and it was called this. I'm not kidding. Men and women are naturally God's enemies. That was the name of the sermon. And Edwards went through all of Scripture and proved this. And he said, now most people are going to think, no, I'm not God's enemy. You know, God and I are good. And he said, but they find out very quickly what those passages in the Bible mean when their desires and their will crosses God's desire and God's will, right? Then the hostility surfaces. And Edwards, he had a vivid imagination. And he said, it's like there's a den of sleeping serpents, adders, poisonous vipers. And they're fine. They're asleep. And then you pick up a rock and you throw it in that den. Now, I'm a, I'm a boy and I grew up in the South. And man, that's exactly what I would do. Amen? Come on, guys. If I see a den of poisonous serpents, you better, I'm going to find the biggest rock I can or stick. And, and, and that's what Edwards was saying. We think we're okay with God until we read God's demands. See, here's, here's the bottom line. We all want to be in charge of ourselves, of our own lives. The Bible says that, right? We all want a crown upon our head. <laughs> That's why when we're born from the womb, we're shaking our fist at God. Because the first words we learn are what? Mine and no. My little 20-month-old, he can say no. He sounds British. He's like, no, no, no. That's one, of the, that's one of his favorite words to say. And I never taught him that. His mother may have. She says no to me a lot. But I didn't teach him that. He came out shaking his fist toward any authority that crosses his desire. He says no, he says more, because he's a fat little chubby guy, and he wants a lot of food, and we run out, and he goes, more, more? I'm like, no, there's no more. And he's throwing food and throwing fits, and we're the same way. When our wills cross God's seat, we want to be in charge, we want to be our own Lord, and we also want to be our own Savior. Some of you guys are getting a little unsettled here, right? I don't talk about this a whole lot, but when I come to it in passage, I have to. I want to be faithful. Because listen, this doctrine will make the gospel and your salvation so much sweeter, guys. Because listen, the Bible says we are, we are at odds with God. But check this out. Did God wait up in heaven for us to finally surrender and put up a puny little white flag and wave it and say, enough, I give up, I give up? No, he didn't. Because you know what? We would, we would have never done that. Because the Bible says no one seeks after God. And there are none righteous, no, not one. But the Bible also says in Romans 5, and I've quoted this before, that while we were still weak, Christ died for us. While we were still sinful, Christ died for us. And then it goes to the superlative and says, while we were still his, what? Enemies. While we were still the enemies of God, he got down off his throne. He took his crown off. I shouldn't say that because Jesus was king. But in a sense, he took off... Um, some of the benefits of, of being sovereign. He subjected himself to time, space, human suffering, and injustice. He came down, condescended, crawled inside a human body, and went to work redeeming us. So this is good news. If you just think that, you know, we were having some problems and we really needed a little help from God, no. Our problems went much deeper than that. We were at odds with God. We were hostile toward Him. And so when Paul says the peace that the gospel provides, gives you this readiness, this preparation. He's talking about that truth. And man, that's a glorious truth. That's hard. That, the part I just shared, that's the, that's the hard part. But listen, on the other side of that, do you know what that does? See, you're no longer a part of the, the warning that says, woe to him who strives with his maker in Isaiah. 
You're not striving with your maker anymore when you believe in Christ. Peace, peace of God has come to you. See, you're at peace with God. The one most glorious, radiant, beautiful, powerful, sovereign being in the universe is no longer your opponent. You're no longer striving with him. You're his friend. You're his ally. In fact, the Bible says you're his sons and daughters. In fact, the Bible goes further and says you are now seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus and your heirs and your joint heirs and one day you will rule with him. You'll be given a new body. He's making all things new. He's restoring this planet. We have all that waiting for us. See, that does something for you. That peace that Paul's talking about, that stabilizes you, it anchors you, it secures you, so you're ready for the battle. See, you can fight against Satan if you know that you and the captain have peace. If you're unsure, hear me on this, church. If you are unsure about your relationship to God, you aren't going to be successful in this invisible battle that we're talking about. No way. If you're uncertain, if you think God's withdrawing for you, from you or that this peace somehow dissolves, see, that's why, that's why the doctrine of eternal security is so critical. It's so critical. When Paul says, a little bit later in Romans 8, that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, that's, that's not Paul just wasting ink, guys. That is like the foundation of our joy in Christ, our assurance, our hope. That's, that's part of the shoes that we're putting on to go to battle. I mean, if you think that if you make one wrong move, if you mess up, if you blow it, then this whole salvation thing, Jesus is going to be rethinking it. You are going to live a paranoid, sad Christian life. That is no way to live your Christian life. And I believe eternal security is taught all over the Bible. All over the Bible. And just to give you a little picture of what, what it means for a soldier when they don't have that confidence, you remember Joshua in the Old Testament? I don't know if there would be a better commander in all of Israel's history of fighting. Joshua was courageous. He was full of faith. He feared God. And he went to battle. I mean, he invaded. He led Israel's invasion into the, the fortress city of Jericho and conquered it. No problem. But do you remember the little city of Ai? When Joshua uh, sent some men up there to attack Ai and they were defeated. Do you remember what this mighty captain, this mighty servant of God, this mighty soldier did when he doubted, is God still with us? He fell to the ground, he collapsed, he heaped dust on top of his head, and he said, Oh Lord, oh Lord, why did you bring us from Egypt if this is the way you're going to treat us? We would have been better off staying in Egypt under the reign of terror of Pharaoh. See, he was doubting whether or not God was still with him, and he couldn't bear to exist anymore as a soldier. He said, send me back. So if one of the mightiest captains in Israel's history, if that's the effect of not knowing about his relationship with God, if that's the effect it has on him, how does that affect you? I'm not so sure Christians are aware of this. We are so unsettled. We are so sensitive. We are so deeply insecure at times in our Christian walk because we have neglected to put this piece of armor on. We don't remind ourselves that God is for me. Listen, guys, God is for you if you are trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. He is for you. He is on your side. He is not your adversary or your opponent anymore. He's your advocate. Now, that's good news, and that's the news you need when you face suffering, when you face persecution, when you get the diagnosis about cancer, when your spouse is walking out on you, when your children are off the reservation. I mean, I can fill in the blank when the financial collapse comes, all the things that rock the rest of the world shouldn't rock us because we have peace with God. I'm not saying 
with a stiff, stiff upper lip and just more resolve and willpower. I'm not saying that. That's what I'm saying not to trust in. It's this peace with God that we have, that we have traction, right? We have traction. You can put, have you ever seen somebody and they're just, you can just push them and they just fall over? I see so many Christians like that because this doctrine has been neglected. We have peace with God. We have been reconciled to Him. He's our Father. He's our friend. He's our friend. God was the friend of Abraham. Haven't you ever read that and thought, man, if I could just... If I could just have that relationship, you have even more than that, the Bible says. It says if the prophets in the Old Testament even understood what they were saying about the Messiah's reigning age as king to come, it would have blown their socks off. We have peace with God, and that equips us, that gives us this footing that's so important. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 6, that amazing glimpse of, of the heavenly throne room? Isaiah was a prophet of God. He lived in the midst of a sinful people, and King Uzziah died a leper because he was cursed by God because he disobeyed, and the whole nation's in an uproar because Uzziah had been a king for like 50 years. And Isaiah's like, Lord, are you still on your throne? Are you still sovereign? Are you in control here? Who's driving this thing? <laughs> and he has this vision of heaven, and God is seated on his throne. And there's this thunderous voice that's booming, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And there's three angels floating up there. They're covering their eyes because God's so holy they can't look. They're covering their feet because they're creatures. And with the other two wings, they're flying. And one of the angels, the Bible says, flies over, flies over to the altar there when this is said. Isaiah looks and he sees this magnificent vision. He sees God's holiness. And then you know what else he sees? When you see God's holiness, what do you see next? Your own sinfulness. And he says, uh-oh. <laughs> this is the sixth chapter of Isaiah. The first five, Isaiah was saying, woe to you. What? He was being a, a true prophet. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you drunken, you drunken people. Woe to you profane priest. And then he sees God and his holiness. And what does he say? Woe is me. I'm undone. I'm finished. He pronounces a curse on himself. He says, because I'm a man of sinful lips and I dwell amongst a sinful people, I am undone. And then this happens. An angel flies over to the altar and takes a live, burning, red-hot coal with a tong. I mean, this thing's so hot that an angel had to use tongs. Check that out, right? This is like nuclear warhead stuff. And he takes this coal and he flies over and he touches Isaiah's lips. When I read that, I hear, <laughs> And that represents atonement. That represents that something painful and radical had to happen for sinful people, even prophets, like Isaiah, to be reconciled to God. But once it's done, that represents the death of Christ. Once it is done, Isaiah is purged and he's cleansed and he's purified. And then God says this. He says, now I have this important mission. There's this important mission that I need somebody to send on. They need to go and they need to preach my word to Israel. And you know what Isaiah says? Here's this prophet that saw God's holiness, saw his own sinfulness, said, I am undone, I'm finished, but now there's peace. There's peace between him and God. You know what Isaiah says? He says, send me. Send me. And you read this mission. It's, <laughs> the mission is like, hey, you're going to go for the rest of your life and preach to people that are calloused, cold, hardened, angry. They're going to persecute you. They may kill you. And tradition says that Isaiah was sawn in two by Manasseh, an evil king. And Isaiah says, I don't care, I'm going anyway. Do you see the kind of resilience that having peace with God brings? It's like nothing else is, is a real viable threat to you. It's almost like bring it on. 
I've got peace with God. I don't need anything else. My feet, I have cleats. I can grip. It's like the baby that you're trying to throw on the bed. They're like, uh-uh, <laughs> they won't let go of you. That's us. When we, wrap this do- when we wrap our minds around this doctrine of the peace of God, it gives us traction. It gives us traction. Because if you don't know how you stand with your captain when you're in battle, listen, that takes away your resolve. You're going to be half-hearted. You're not going to be committed. I was reading a book by Stephen Ambrose about World War II. And you know, Hitler and, and uh, the not- Nazi Germany... Hitler, as he was trying to build up his army, his army, he would do battle with other nations, and he would capture prisoners, POWs, prisoners of war, and he would force them to enlist in his army, fighting against the Allied forces. Are you guys with me? So check this out. All these American soldiers that went and were fighting against Germany, whenever they would, they would encounter some of these POWs, it would only take them raising their rifle, and the POWs would pull out a white flag and wave it and surrender. Did you know that? Do you know Why? Because they knew, those POWs knew, if Germany wins the war, who's going to be their commander? (laughs) Hitler. (laughs) Right? Now, how would you feel about that? How resolved would you be to fight in a war if you knew, if you win, the king's going to be Hitler? They weren't resolved at all. They couldn't wait to surrender and change sides. Because that's what, being unsure, because Hitler was a tyrant, obviously. He was satanic. He was probably possessed by the devil himself. Here, let me move this slide so you guys can... There we go. Um, so that's what... Knowing that you have peace with your commander-in-chief, that is an important part of the battle. That gives you resolve. That helps you to face persecution and even death. I went to London with Jeff Eckert. We, we led a group of missionaries there and visited one of our graduates from seminary. And they took us to a place in Oxford. It's about 60 miles away from London. And I stood in the very spot where three famous Oxford men were burned at the stake during the reign of Bloody Mary. Do you remember the history of that? In the mid-1500s, Mary was a Roman Catholic, and she took over the throne as the Queen of England, and she hated Protestantism. She hated, and you know the difference between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Protestants say it is finished, it is done, Jesus paid it all. I don't add anything to it. And Roman Catholicism, maybe I'm oversimplifying this. They say, yes, it's, it's faith in Christ, but it's also your works. And so there was this huge battle, and Mary hated the Protestants. She hated especially the Protestant preachers, like me. And you know what she did to them? She had them beheaded, and she had them burned alive at the stake in the middle of the city to warn all the other preachers, if you don't recant of this nonsense of faith in Christ alone, if you don't change your mind about this and sign a letter, this is what's going to happen to you. So I think some 250 Protestant pastors were burned alive. And I stood on the very spot where, where three of the most famous ones. One was Hugh Latimer, friend. And they were burned alive. And there was another friend that was arrested, and he was in prison, and Bloody Mary made her watch those two men burn at the stake. Now, imagine what that would do to you if you were warned, hey, listen, all you got to do is recant of this. And if you don't, their fate is going to be your fate. But there was a famous exchange that went between the two men that were burning alive. Check this out. I wrote it down because I wanted wanted to get it right. Um, As the flames were coming up around them, one was Hugh Latimer and the other was Nicholas Ridley. Latimer turned to Ridley and, and he said, And Cramner was up in a jail watching this, listening. He said, Be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. 
Now, I just want to ask you a question. Look, I don't want to unfairly compare us with all the people in the Fox's Book of Martyrs, and they were singing hymns and smiling when the... I wouldn't be doing that. You know what I'd be doing if I was burning alive? I mean, seriously, I'd be flipping out because I'm a weenie, okay? I have a weak uh, pain threshold. But these guys, I mean, the first century, Christians were thrown to the lions singing, rejoicing. And, and sometimes we're like, yeah, they were, that was just a supernatural, but they were humans like us. And I want to dig up, I want to know what caused them to have that kind of confidence because I want it. I want that because, listen, that persecution's probably coming to America one day, folks. I'm not, I'm not trying to scare you. It just is. All the signs are here. It's coming. And I want to have that kind of resolve, that kind of resilience. I want to have that kind of traction where I'm sure, I'm so convinced of what I believe and that God is for me. That's what they had. So check this out. Thomas Cramner is up there watching this. And it scared him and shook him. See, I identify with him. And he signed a letter. He said, I recant. And you know what? It's easy to read that and be like, you jerk, you weenie, what in the world? Man, I, <laughs> I wouldn't have had to watch my friends burn. I would have been like, bring me the letter and bring me extra copies so it makes sure and gets to, blood, <laughs> to Mary. I'll sign it. But he signed. He recanted of his belief in, in justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And six months went by and he was torn to pieces by conviction. It just bothered him. He was up in that prison. They let him out. And he's watching all of his fellow clergy be beheaded and burned at the stake, and he couldn't handle it anymore. And he called for the, for the, for the queen's errand boy, and he said, look, I recant of my recanting. <laughs> he said, I won't bring the paper. And the guy's like, you know what this means? He said, I know what it means. So they brought him a paper, and he recanted of his recanting. They took it to the queen, and she said, get as much wood as you can find right in the middle right in the middle of the road. I stood in the place, there's a cross with cobblestone in the middle of the, it's called Broad Street in Oxford, England. And they brought him there, and the flames were coming up, and this is what that, this is what he did. Latimer, or uh, Thomas Cran, uh, Cramner, the uh, Archbishop of Canterbury. He put his right hands, he plunged his right hand into the fire first. And he said, I want the hand... He said, I want the hand that betrayed Christ to burn first. And then the flames devoured him. And, and you've got to ask yourself, what produced that kind of courage and fearlessness? Because I'm a man like him, and I don't feel like I had that. And I think it's because those men so meditated on the glories of what Christ did for them that it transformed them. You know? I want to be transformed like that, don't you? I mean, I'm scared to share the gospel with my neighbors sometimes. <laughs> We're talking about getting burned alive. <laughs> so, this is important stuff. Now listen, maybe, maybe you're not like those guys. Maybe, maybe you don't stand in danger of being burned alive for your faith. Or maybe you're not like Martin Luther, who was facing 12 centuries of Roman Catholic tradition. And he was up against men that could have his head on a silver platter. And he said, here I stand, I can do, I can do no other God help me. Maybe you're not facing those things, but I will tell you what you are facing in this battle against Satan. You're facing a fallen heart. You're facing the world. You're facing your own flesh that oftentimes is contrary to God's will and God's commandments. And I think, friend, I want to be really candid and really honest. I've been praying about this. I've been thinking about this a lot. I don't do this a whole lot here. I always tell you I'm not wagging my finger at you. 
Uh, I, don't, I try not to be reactionary in my preaching, so I want to tell you, this is not reactionary, okay? This is just me as a pastor. I want to take an opportunity to apply this text. You may not be facing uh, people that are going to burn you alive, but you are facing your own flesh, and I want to ask you, how, result, how, how does knowing you have peace with God, that He did what He did for you, how does that give you stability and security and anchor, anchor you to obey God? How are you doing in that portion of your life? How do you view your finances? Are you a person who is just characterized by stinginess, by selfishness, by greed? You're not being generous and kind-hearted to other people and giving, knowing that all this money belongs to the one who gave his life to bring peace to you. It's his anyway. The Bible says he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he owns the hills that the cattle are on too, right? And he owns us, and he owns our, our, our checkbook. And no, this is not the preacher going to give you a sermon about tithing. I want to go beyond that. How do you view sex? It gets really quiet whenever a preacher talks about that. How do you view sex? Are you, do you view sex as something very sacred and beautiful that God gave us that points to the pleasures that await us in Christ? Do you view that as, as something that's, that's very sacred and, and, and clean that should take place in marriage and not outside of marriage? Are you sleeping around? Because this, this applies to that. Are you greedy? Are you stingy? Are you loose in your living? How are you doing with all those commitments? With, with reading the Bible? That applies. How committed are you? How, how built into your life is this commitment to God's eternal truth. Because I, I always see a correlation between slipping, losing ground, and just this half-hearted, just a half-in, half-out commitment to Scripture, or maybe even to church attendance. You know? Those things are all in the Bible. These are things that please the Lord. These are things that are good for us. <laughs> They're good for us. I love what Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the beginning of her G Jesus storybook, Bible for Children. She says, the Bible is filled with rules, but it's much more than that. Uh, but these rules are, how God, are, are gifts that God gave us for how life works best. Do you view the commandments that way? These are, are rules not to crimp your freedom. <laughs> these are rules for how life works best. And God's the creator of life, and so he knows, right? And he gave, his son, he gave his son's life to create peace between he and us. So are we honoring those things? Is that our heart? Because if these men could be that strong and, and stand that steadfastly on their conviction of the doctrine of justification by faith, how far are we willing to go with obedience? Is it only when it's convenient or only when it's easy? And when the passions arise, we just cast off all restraint? You need to put on the readiness that the gospel of peace provides you. That's the armor that I think a lot of Christians are missing. I'm tempted to tie my shoe right now. I keep stepping on this thing. So, man, I, that was just first point, and I'm already running out of time here. Um, let me read something to you that J.C. Ryle said. This is so awesome. I know it's long, but please listen to this. This tells you what the peace of God, the assurance that that provides, how it impacts you. Check this out. Now, assurance goes far to set a child of God free from this painful kind of bondage and thus ministers mightily to his comfort. It enables him to feel that the great business of life is a settled business, the great debt a paid debt, 
the great disease, a healed disease, and the great work, a finished work, and all other business, diseases, debts, and works are then by comparison small. In this way, assurance makes him patient in tribulation, calm under bereavements, unmoved in sorrow, not afraid of evil tidings, in every condition content, for it gives him a fixedness of heart. It sweetens his bitter cups. It lessens the burden of his crosses. It smooths the rough places over which he travels. And it lightens the valley of the shadow of death. It makes him always feel that he has something solid beneath his feet and something firm under his hands. A sure friend, by the way, and a sure home at the end. Do you, do you have that? Do you have that kind of assurance? It's like one of my favorite uh, historical figures. Um... Stonewall Jackson, have you guys heard of him? He got his nickname in battle because one of his uh, soldiers that was watching him fight saw uh, uh, bullets whizzing by him and he was on his horse and they said, look, there he is, Jackson, sitting like a stone wall. And later they, they asked him, sir, how is it that you could stay so calm and fixed in the middle of battle like that and with bullets flying around your head? And he said, the nature of my faith teaches me that I am as safe in battle as I am in bed. I do not fear the day of my death. I do not concern myself with such things as that. Now, he had some other problems, obviously. But that's the kind of uh, grip and footing that this is talking about, right? Do you have that? I'm trying to figure out how to do, how to do this, guys. We've got uh, just a few more minutes here. Some of these things are going to spill over into the other pieces of armor, but... The other things that this uh, gospel of peace provides by way of shoe wear is protection. You know, I told you that armies that were going to invade would often encounter spikes that were planted in, the, in the, the grasslands so that you would, your soldiers would step on that and they would be out of commission. This is a, a toughness. This peace, this peace with God gives you a peace from God. Everyone's seeking the latter, by the way. I could talk about this too. Everyone is seeking this peace from God, but they're trying to, to circumvent the peace with God. And you don't get the one without the other. People go to, to uh, you know, secular psychologists and secular psychiatrists that have no connection to Christ at all. They're wanting this peace that we're reading about here. And the Bible says the only way you get peace from God is to have peace with God. And when you have that, it makes you tough. The things that would, if you were an unbeliever, would just knock you out of commission, there's a stability there. Things still bother you. You still experience hesitation and weakness and sometimes fall prey to sin. But there's this toughness in there. There's this resilience. Charles Simeon served in a church in Cambridge for 54 years. And check this out, guys. For the first 12 years that he was the pastor in that church, the church absolutely hated his guts. <laughs> check that out. I've been at this church for three and almost a half years. Three and a half years. I could not endure to pastor you for a month or two months if I knew you felt the same way about me that those people felt about Charles Simeon. Do you know what they would do back then? They had the end of the, they had pews, and the end of the pews would have a door that had a lock on it. And they would lock all the pews so that no guests could come and hear Charles Simeon. They would call another preacher to occupy the pulpit on Sunday nights because they could not stand to listen to this guy. And all he did was preach the gospel. And you know how long it took him to win them over? 12 years. This is a true story. You can go check it out on Google if you want to because Google always tells the truth, right? <laughs> 12 years in Cambridge, England, he preached the gospel to that church 
And years later, he would write this about this peace of God. This is, this, is, this is a little bit lengthy, but check this out. Without this peace, we are ill-prepared to surmount, their obsta- surmount the obstacles which our subtle adversary will place in our way. The scorn and the contempt that we shall encounter will dismay us. Our feelings will be wounded every step we take, and we shall soon be weary and exhausted. But let the gospel have its due effect. Let it render us meek, patient, forbearing, and forgiving. Let it transform us into the image of the meek and lowly Jesus, who when he was reviled, reviled not again, and when he suffered, threatened not, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. And the stumbling blocks that offended us before will appear unworthy of any serious regard. Isn't that awesome? Don't you love that? They will appear unworthy. That sounds like somebody else I read in the Bible, the Apostle Paul. When he was writing Romans... He was being persecuted, afflicted, threatened. He was stoned and left for dead outside the city. You remember that? They drug him outside the city and dropped him. And later, Paul would say this. He would say, when I consider all of these afflictions, they're light and they're momentary. And then he went on to say this. And they are unworthy to be compared to the glory that I shall one day enjoy because of the peace of God. (laughs) You see, they just had everything in perspective. Light momentary affliction. Why? Because I got peace with God, bro. (laughs) I'm set. I'm set. Let the world bring its worst. Let the devil do his worst. I have peace with God. I'm going to rebound. If they, if they, the, the lower they can lay me in the grade, the higher God will raise me. I got peace with God. That's all I'm. That's all I need. Psalm 56 9. Psalm 56 9 says, "This I know that God is for me." What else do I need? (laughs) I mean, who else need? Martin Luther said this. He said, if the whole world forgave him of sin and were his friend, but God would not and, and was not, he couldn't, he couldn't bear to endure his existence. But on the other hand, if the whole world called Luther a vandal and a villain, which they pretty much did at the time he was nailed the 95 Thesis to the door at Wittenberg, and yet God forgave him and reconciled him, he would be set for all eternity. Friends, that's what we have in the gospel. That's the truth. That's the beauty. That's the power. Think on these things until the glory of that begins to transform your heart and your mind. Then you will be able to get a grip. Then you'll be able to be protected. And the last point, I'm not going to take the time. You'll be light, but you'll be mobile. You'll be able to do hard things. You'll be able to stay in hard marriages. You'll be able to stay at hard places of, of, of work, right? We want out of those things. Like, Lord, let me out of this. Sometimes God wants you in that so he can walk through it with you because of the peace of God that you have through Christ, right? Amen. Let's pray.